This is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. Hello, I am Evan Shinners. You may call me WTF Bach if you wish to use less letters and one more syllable. The goal of this podcast is to get you to hear Bach the way I hear Bach. The impetus for such a program is to guide your ears to set your mind on certain aspects of this complicated music. Bach's music, like many great forms of art, while capable of being appreciated on the surface, only becomes profound with study. Bach's music is like the universe, beautiful from any perspective, but with telescopes and other tools, more mind-blowing, more truly awesome, and simply more to have an appreciation for. Now here's a quote for you. All this Huxley, with whom I have a fascination, has this very famous quote about Bach, which ends something like, Who on earth was this Johann Sebastian? But I didn't realize this quote came from one of his LSD experiments in the 1950s. So think about that. Huxley, all this Huxley, one of the greatest intellectuals of all time, zonked on a chair, on a couch, whatnot, listening to Bach. And this is what he said. Time was very different. We played the Bach B minor suite and the musical offering and the experience was overpowering. Other music, Palestrina and Bird, seemed unsatisfactory by comparison. Bach was a revelation. The tempo of the pieces did not change. Nevertheless, they went on for centuries, and they were a manifestation on the plane of art of perpetual creation, a demonstration of the necessity of death and the self-evidence of immortality, an expression of the essential all-rightness of the universe. For the music was far beyond tragedy, but included death and suffering with everything else in the divine impartiality, which is the one, which is love, which is being, or istigkeit. That's the German word for just isness. Who on earth was Johann Sebastian? Clearly not the old gent with 16 children in a stuffy Protestant environment. Rather, an enormous manifestation of the other, but the other canalized, controlled, made available through the intervention of the intellect and the senses and the emotions. This is the WTF Bach Podcast. WTF Bach is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. So, we are here after the Stretto Fugues. Now, as mentioned at the close of the Simple Fugues, one organizing principle put forth would be to punctuate the endings of the so-called chapters in the Art of Fugues by putting one of the four canons at the end of each chapter. Four seems to be an important number for Bach in the Art of Fugue. Well, four and three, but mostly four. Four voices, four canons. The final work is a quadruple fugue. There's also four distinct groups of fugues. Simple fugues, stretto fugues, compound fugues, and finally mirror fugues. So while in a performance of the Art of Fugue, one could go about ordering the pieces in many different ways, I found it best for this podcast to discuss a canon after each chapter. And since we just finished the second chapter on stretto fugues, we get to our second canon, the canon at the tenth in counterpoint at the third. Now, a canon for us is a round. It's a basic musical form of expression which has probably existed for thousands of years. Well, at least 8,000 years in many cultures. It's a classic musical trick, right? I sing a melody, you sing the same melody after I start singing. But what was a canon for Bach? Well, to him, it might be just as simple as that. We saw in the episode about the first canon, in fact, he does sometimes write the same melody repeated at a different time at the same interval. And though this melody is a little more complicated than Three Blind Mice, it's the same idea. But Bach sometimes gets really wild with canons. In fact, 
Bach would often give people little scraps of paper with cannons on it as gifts, as a baptism present or a gift to dedicate a book, whatnot. I say scraps because they often were like little note cards, three by six inches, or for my non-American listeners, nine by 15 centimeters, where on this little space he draws a few notes, even as few as six or eight notes, and then he puts all these different clefts and accidentals on the sides of the notes like a puzzle. It's really wild looking, so I'm going to include a link to one of these photographs of Bach's gift cannons in the description, where there are four clefts on the same line. Now, just think about what that means. Four clefts on the same line. Most of us, when we're learning to read music, you know, we have treble clefts, bass clefts, whatnot. But what do you do when you see four clefts on the same line of music? Well, and then what do you do when at the end of the same line you see another four clefts, but they're upside down, and then there are all of a sudden these key signatures that are going upside down? This is Bach, the genius, tinkering with the little shape, tinkering with whatever little shape of notes he's come up with. And these few notes on this little card is like the melody Three Blind Mice or whatever, but he's thought of every conceivable way to move up and down this shape, to move it backwards, to add different key signatures. And thus, with a mind like that, with a mind that can somehow imagine sound as infinite possibilities of shapes being mutated, in his mind he derives from, again, as few as six notes, an entire piece of music. So, back to the second canon in the Art of Fugue. Bach is here tinkering with the shape, this Art of Fugue theme, which by now has been blown, hammered, knocked, and kicked into every conceivable fugal state. It will now be warped into canons. Now, some of you listening might be familiar with the Goldberg variations. You've already seen this technique of canon. In the Goldberg variations, every third variation, I should say, Bach writes a canon. But with every canon, he increases the space between the leader and the follower. So the first canon is the classic, I sing a melody, you sing the same melody after me. But the next canon is, I sing the melody, you sing the melody, but one step higher. And the third canon is yet another step apart. And on and on until the ninth canon, they are now nine steps apart. And the Goldberg variations come from the last decade of Bach's life, like the Art of Fugue and also another work called A Musical Offering, which contains ten canons, also arranged in order of increasing complexity. So we get this idea that Bach, in the last ten years of his life, was playing with these shapes, these melodies, and looking for ways to create music, but a lot of canons actually, based on these smaller little segments of music. So again, moving back to the Art of Fugue, this second canon is going to be a little more complicated than the first. Now, it is not found in the original edition, which leads us to believe that it was composed later, and the titles are in Italian, which is probably a sign that Bach did not give them the title. Why? Because he preferred naming the canons in Greek. Well, why Greek? Now is the time for me to shout out to Roman, the musicologist at the Hochschule für Musik in Weimar, where Bach lived, by the way, and worked, who answered this question when I posed it on Instagram, why was Bach naming these canons in Greek interval names? And Roman said that it's probably due to the music theory work of Zarlino and Calvisius. Now, Zarlino, Giuseppe Zarlino, he died in 1590. He was an Italian music theorist and probably the most famous music theorist before Bach's contemporary, Rameau. And Zarlino wrote extensively on counterpoint and tuning. So yeah, this was definitely a guy that Bach was checking out and he knew him well. In fact, in the year 2003, there was another important Bach discovery where they turned up this piece, canons, exercises penned by Bach that are called canons by some rules of Zarlino. And they dated this to 1742-1743, exactly the time when Bach would have been turning over these canons of the Art of Fugue in his mind. So, mystery solved, or at least somewhat solved, 
Bach, the greatest music student, is reading Zarlino, and he sees that Zarlino is naming these things in the Greek intervals and the numberings, and he thinks that's a good idea. And sort of coming out of the same tradition, he names the canons in Greek. Back to the canon itself. If the canon at the octave provides counterpoint at the same note or the unison, the canon at the tenth provides counterpoint at the third. I explained this idea of compound intervals before, but briefly, you can reduce intervals larger than seven by seven and preserve their original contrapuntal relationships. Example, I just said that the octave, the eighth, provides counterpoint at the unison, the one, because eight minus seven is one. Now the canon at the tenth provides counterpoint at the third, 10 minus seven is three. It's a basic concept. It sounds much fancier than it is to say the canon at the tenth with counterpoint at the third, but that's what it is. Now here is where Bach excels, because not only will this canon be a canon at the tenth, that is the imitating voice will be 10 steps above the leading voice, but halfway through this composition, Bach will switch the interval back to the octave, thus showing that this line, this one line of music, still based on the artifugue theme, is capable of functioning at two different intervals. So let's listen. I said before you could play a canon simply by using a delay pedal or a recording by copying and pasting the recording. So what I've done here is I've recorded the leader, the dukes, and pasted the follower, the comes, at the right place and pitched it up 10 pitches. So this is going to sound like normal piano followed by re-pitched piano. Okay, it's a little wacky, and also there's this helicopter flying around, uh, which also gets copied and pasted and repitched. That's fun. But uh, that is essentially the music. Now, one of the things that I did not notice until I tried this little experiment was that the Dukes, the leader, outlines a minor triad right at the beginning, and the Comes in Bach's piece, the follower, outlines a major triad. Now, when you're copying and pasting directly one strip of audio and just pitching it higher, you can't have such a change in the harmony. So you could hear this, this mistaken note here, right here. Should be You know, it's a, what we call in the business, a tonal answer instead of a real answer, which is a literal transposition from every interval. So that actually is an interesting aspect that this music, though very mathematically and concept based, does not translate in the details, in the beauty of it. Because the thing is, you could get a computer to do the bulk action to get you the idea of what is going on here in such a canon, but actually the details need to be worked out. So the structure of this canon is as follows. It goes for 39 bars with the imitator imitating the leader at the interval of the tenth, just like we showed here. But then after bar 39, at exactly bar 40, the imitator breaks off from the leader and begins his own theme, and at that moment, the leader and the follower switch roles. The follower becomes the leader and vice versa. And the interval shifts back to that of an octave. But the important thing to note is that this is still the same music being imitated and being followed. There's no new music being composed here because the new leader, the original follower, will begin leading with the same thing that the original leader said. And the new follower, the original leader, will imitate at the interval of an octave. So I can do that with everything that I've already recorded. <laughs> 
that, that is essentially the music of this canon from bar 40 onwards. And what I said last time about the details not being able to be worked out by a computer is almost not true. There are still a few areas where Bach will adjust an interval here or there, but that sounds pretty much like the canon at the 10th from bar 40 onward. Now, if you're thinking like Bach, and I know you all are, you will think that I did 39 bars of imitation at the 10th, and now I'm going to do 39 bars of imitation at the octave. So where does that get you? To bar 78. So you open up your score and you look at bar 79, because you think, huh, the composition should have ended by there. But then you have this really wild coda. It's a coda in a canon. And I, for one, cannot explain the metric modulation. You know, everything has been going sort of in these triple feelings, these three note beats, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And then all of a sudden at bar 79, everything becomes duple. Duka, 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 one, two, one, two, one, two. And then Bach writes this word, cadenza, right before the final note, which means improvise, add this thing. So here Bach is really thinking of this concert piece. Now, this last part sounds like this when played in a computer, just to show you how mathematically bizarre the metric modulation is. That is the shift from three note beats to two note beats. Right there. Okay, that was the switch. We need to hear that again. Let's go from the place where we have three note beats. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And then all of a sudden. One, two, 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 one, two. And then. There is, he writes cadenza here, and then a big trill, and the piece is over. And for those electronic music producers listening, that at the end is actually a trill being quantized. I played in the trill and then hit the quantize button, and of course that, you know, that's the result. <laughs> okay, so there are a few of you wondering, what happened to the music that the leader was singing when the follower broke off and decided to become leader? Because if, you know, the follower's going along, singing everything that was sung by the leader, suddenly if he decides to become the leader, there must have been some music which went unfollowed, unsung. And this is true. And often in canons, there needs to be some, quote, cadential counterpoint. That is, music which is left unimitated for the sake of having both voices end at the same time. But Bach has this really, really ingenious solution to this very common canonic problem. See if you can follow this. When the voice following became the leader... The music at that point, which went unimitated, becomes the cadential counterpoint at the end of the piece. Said in another way, the music that the original leader was singing will become the music that the new leader will be singing at the end of the piece when the new follower is still playing catch-up to him. Okay, now let's just isolate these two parts in the piece and show that it is in fact the same music. It will happen here in the low voice. And these 16th notes are... And now, there is when the new leader comes in. And you'll hear the original leader follow him right there. Right there, it switches to imitation at the octave, showing that it is a canon functioning at two simultaneous intervals. But if we fast forward to the part where we have that leftover music, that music which went unimitated, it sounded like this originally in the lower voice. Like this with 16th notes. And so what do we have in the right hand? A 
again, that's your cue there, that it's that unimitated music, and then the 16th notes. So we can hear that again in both parts and listen for that. Okay, there it was in the lower voice. Now let's see what it sounds like in the upper voice just one more time. Okay, there it is. So in fact, this music, though unimitated at one point, eventually becomes recycled. And right where that example fades out, that's where we get that coda. Let's hear someone play it so that we can hear what happens in the cadenza. And that will be it for this episode.
Ooh, I like that. That was Helmut Walcher, the blind organist from Leipzig, and his cadenza was the one that went... So let's listen to a few other cadenzas from other people and see how they might interpret this great pause in the canon. Nice. Full points if you knew that was the great one, Gustav Leonhardt. Okay, that was certainly the most elaborate of the cadences we'll hear today. That was David Moroni, harpsichordist. friend of the show, Robert Hill. Let's hear that one again, because that one was really spectacular. And it occurs to me that it would be a great exercise for anyone listening who wants to improve their Baroque ears, to improve their sense of improvisation or playing or composition from this era of Baroque music to transcribe these, to actually transcribe these cadences. That is, learn them off the recording. Learn how to play them by ear. if those of you listening over a certain age knew that that was Tatiana Nikolaeva, and we will end the episode by hearing her rendition of the canon in full. But first, I just want to mention that next episode is a bonus episode where the pieces analyzed will be pieces suggested by you, the listener. So if you have a specific piece that you want me to analyze, send me a DM on Instagram at WTF Bach. Send me a message on Twitter, also at WTF Bach. Write me an email, Bach at WTF Bach and I will get those pieces to you and keep the request something like that I can manage in an episode, so a movement of a piece or a fugue or something like that. Don't come at me with the Christmas oratorio or the St. Luke Passion. So thank you very much for listening.
You are listening to the WTF Bach Podcast. We are a brand new podcast and we want to hear from you. Got suggestions? You want a specific piece of Bach analyzed by Evan just for you? You can write to us. Do you want to partner with us? Write us at the WTF Bach Podcast. Send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. WTF Bach. Help keep this podcast alive. Support us. Find the links in the episode description. What a, what a great, great day to be listening to WTF Bach. Thank you for listening. Listen, listen, listen.